The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, you could stick a hand up. We have a few on the welcome table. This morning we're continuing in our series, Set Apart, which will conclude next week. There's a detective novel written by the famous English author, Agatha Christie, entitled Murder on the Orient Express. Even if you're not aware of it as a novel, you might be familiar with the title because it's been adapted into a movie twice, first in 1974 and then again in 2017, and both times with a star-studded ensemble cast. I've watched and enjoyed both versions, even though I'm sure there are many people who would argue about which was better. The lead character is a world-famous detective from Belgium named Hercule Poirot. I'm doing my best not to massacre the French name since that was done regularly in the film, much to his chagrin. He's a brilliant and quirky character. In the 2017 adaptation, there's a scene where Poirot is walking in the city of Jerusalem and steps into a large pile of animal droppings. He stops without moving his foot and he looks down. Uh, The military officer who's walking alongside him realizes what happens and begins to apologize. But Poirot explains that what's bothering him is not him soiling his shoe, but, as he says, the imbalance. So he takes one foot out of it and then carefully plants the other shoe in it on the other side of the pile of droppings and says, it is better. This morning, I'm going to imitate Poirot and step in it also. So I may as well do so with both feet. This morning, we're going to talk about modesty. And it's a mess. The teaching out there, that's out there in the Christian world is a confusing mess of ideas and assertions, rules and the repudiation of them, and creative and questionable use of Scripture. I actually heard somebody preach from Isaiah 6 about the train of his robe and preach modesty. So, yeah, that's, that's the kind of stuff that's coming at you. Now, I have no personal desire, if it were up to me, to join this massive and unending argument. But I do have a pastoral responsibility to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. Christians, as we have been considering in this series, have been set apart for God to bring him glory by conduct which conforms to his commands and reflects his character. And that includes being called to modesty. This is what we see in one specific way in 1 Timothy 2, uh, verses 9 and 10. In those two verses, Paul gives a command to women, to wives really. We're going to look at those instructions, but this is not a sermon for women only. As a part of holiness, modesty is something that every believer is called to. So men, we are included. And just like holiness, modesty is pursued in community. So we need to be equipped to do so together. We're going to start by reading 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. I'll unpack it a bit later in the sermon. But for our time to be truly profitable, we're going to need to step back to examine the virtue of modesty. So let's listen to this instruction and then step back. This is God's holy word given to shape us as his holy people. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. 
Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. We have a journey in front of us this morning, and I want to encourage you that this is a good journey. It feels messy. The whole issue of modesty feels messy, and there are genuine reasons for that. I would understand if some of you are already feeling some uncertainty and even deep apprehension about this topic. But this is a journey deeper into the grace of God. Here's how I'm going to break up our journey. Three signposts. Considering modesty, defining modesty, and pursuing modesty. So first, considering modesty. To begin, let's ask the obvious question. Why are we considering modesty? And I have a number of reasons. The first is that the scriptures call us to holiness in this area. We've already read these verses from 1 Timothy, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his protege and ministry partner, Timothy, to advise him as he dealt with issues that were arising in the church in Ephesus. The theme of the letter, helpfully summarized by one commentator, is that the gospel leads to practical, visible change in the lives of those who believe it. Paul rarely mentions holiness in that letter. What he speaks about over and over again is the pursuit of godliness. And of course, that's synonymous. And the governing idea which holds together and informs all of the specific instructions that Paul gives in this letter is found in chapter 1, verse 5. So you can look over in your Bibles at chapter 1, verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the pursuit of modesty then is an expression of love which flows from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Another reason for our consideration of modesty is that it is an area that has been greatly misunderstood and misframed. And that has resulted in confusion and discouragement, in captivity and damage. We misunderstand modesty when it is taught as a set of rules that govern what women wear. We err both in approach and in scope. As believers, we have great reason to be concerned about any approach to any issue of holiness which is taken by imposing rules. In Colossians, Paul hits out at subjecting ourselves to rules and regulations that aim to govern our behavior, which have an appearance of wisdom but have no value in curbing our self-indulgence. Rules cannot produce godliness because they cannot govern the heart. So the pursuit of modesty is misframed when it is concerned with lines and lengths and not with hearts. It's not that modesty has nothing to do with clothing, but as one blogger I read wisely wrote, we've got to move beyond modesty being a clothes issue. Clothes are a symptom, but not the disease. But we're also erring in scope. Modesty is not a women's issue. It's a heart issue. That means that both men and women can be immodest in how we behave, in how we speak, and in how we dress, and in other areas that we need wisdom to discern. I'm going to fill this out some more later on in the sermon. There are other ways that we misframe modesty, like teaching modesty as a means to catch a good man, or teaching modesty as primarily being about a woman, woman's responsibility not to incite lust in the men around her. The problem with that, in, in both cases... Or sorry, the problem is that in both cases, God is not at the center of our behavior. What's at the center is other people or ourselves. 
The problem compounds, particularly in that second case, when Christian men, based on what they think or what they have heard taught about modesty, begin to believe that their Christian sister's primary responsibility in how they dress is towards them. This can lead to opposite errors. On one hand, looking down on our sisters who transgress what we think the standards should be, and on the other, thinking or even communicating to our sisters that we're fine with whatever they wear as if we have the right to release them from living to please God in the way they dress. But the spiraling problems of our misunderstanding of modesty get even worse. The rules that we have created for what is modest, the how long, the how low, how tight rules, can become a system of measuring righteousness, where adherence makes you acceptable and violation makes you an outcast. So in our attempts to uphold the standards, many women have been deeply hurt and sinned against in Jesus' name. As Christians, we need to have functioning categories for the possibility that I can sin against a brother or sister and be completely convinced that what I am doing is pleasing Jesus. We sin when we try, judge, and convict people in our hearts. We sin against people when we attempt to shame them towards a standard that we think that they must live up to, with disapproving and disparaging looks and with muttered comments. We sin when we confront others about what we perceive to be a lack of modesty without love, humility, and gentleness. Sometimes we've assumed that the standard in our head is God's standard. Sometimes we've assumed that the modesty we see is a sin issue when it may not be. I'm generally aware of how Christian leaders can sin against women by raining condemnation down from on high, from the pulpit. I'm also specifically aware, because of conversations with close friends over many years, of things that have been said by Christian women to other women, to teenagers even, in the name of promoting modesty, that are deeply sinful and abusive. They entirely fail the biblical standard that we looked at last week for our speech, that our words should give grace to those who hear I'm saying this today in particular because a part of the process of healing for women who have been sinned against in these ways is someone acknowledging that the way they have been treated is sinful. We must learn to confront each other about concerns with modesty, but in ways that please God and serve people rather than shaming them. You see, we also sin when we avoid ever confronting each other about these things. Love does not look like live and let live. We have the responsibility to help others to seek to please Jesus, to call each other to holiness. Here's another important consideration when it comes to modesty. Physical attractiveness is not immodesty. The Bible makes note without any negative overtones of several women who were who who exceptionally beautiful, including Rebecca, Rachel, Abigail, and even Abraham's wife, Sarah, when she was very much a senior citizen, even by the standards of the day. There are women whom God has chosen to bless with particular body types, with proportions and features, who would have to walk around in a refrigerator box to go unnoticed. No matter how modestly they dress, they attract unwanted and often sinful attention. For women like these, who are concerned with pleasing God, it can be a terrible burden to carry, much less having to bear the condemnation of others who mistake their beauty for immodesty. And in some cases, the criticism they receive comes from other women who really should be checking their hearts to see whether they're speaking out of fear for their marriages or plain old garden variety jealousy rather than love for their neighbor or concern for God's honor. And at this point, I need to make something clear to the men. Modesty is not the kryptonite that will kill or lust problems. 
We are responsible for our sexual sin in thought and in deed, no matter how the women around us dress or do not dress. If a woman chooses to display her body in a way that is immodest, that does not mean that we are free now to enjoy the show or excuse when we lost. As Kevin DeYoung rightly says, the absence of modesty in one party does not justify the absence of restraint in another. We have made a mess of modesty. Immodesty is a problem, but rules are not going to fix it. So what should we do? Elise Fitzpatrick, in blogging on this issue, suggests that perhaps we should ignore the whole immodesty problem altogether, because after all, God looks on the heart. And our pastors and brothers will just have to learn to look only at a woman's face. Thankfully, she's not being serious. Yet, she's not far from the truth, is she? It seems to me that for some Christian women, without any malicious intent, and sometimes in response to poor teaching and painful experiences, have determined to dress on the basis of a self-made standard. Essentially, however they feel comfortable dressing, without any serious regard for what pleases God. Now, I'm sympathetic to a lot of women in their confusion and in what they've suffered, but that's not the standard we're called to. This is the standard. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We're not going to please God through either legalism or license. So what are we left with? We are left with what we started with in the first place and mistakenly excluded from the reckoning when it comes to modesty. We are left with the gospel. Christian modesty is a virtue which flows from the gospel. As R.W. Glenn and Tim Chalice say in their excellent book on modesty, the gospel of grace informs and gives, shapes to what, gives shape to what it means to be modest. Then they capture exactly what a lot of us have seen. Modesty without the gospel is prudishness. Modesty divorced from the gospel becomes the supposed benchmark of Christian maturity, perhaps especially for women. And a perch of self-righteous oh, self superiority from which to look down on others who just don't get it. And they highlight this great need. We need to be sure that our understanding of modesty flows from the gospel and leads to gospel love. If it doesn't, we've missed the mark and our modesty is no virtue at all. And this is where the rubber hits the road for us as a local church. We dress casually here at Grace Family Church. No, that was a deliberate decision because we wanted to reduce some of the normal cultural hurdles that are associated with coming to church. But that can lead to other challenges. As we've gathered both on Sundays and socially, I have had occasions of concern about modesty, and not just related to women's clothing, but for both men and women with their speech. If we're pursuing holiness together, we need to be able to have conversations about these things. So it's going to serve us to learn about modesty and how we can call each other to modesty in gospel love. In addition, our goal is to be a church that's welcoming to people who don't yet know Jesus. Some of them may not be modest. If we don't get our posture right regarding modesty, we're not going to be able to welcome them with the accepting grace of the gospel and lead them towards the transforming grace of the gospel. So we've considered modesty as a biblical command, as an area that's both misunderstood and misframed, and as an area where we need clarity if we're going to obey God and walk together as a local church. We need to see how the person and work of Jesus informs and gives shape to our pursuit of modesty. But first, we need to seek to understand what modesty is in the first place. So that brings us to our second signpost, 
defining modesty. Before we try to understand and define modesty, I want to help you to see why what we're attempting to do is good and necessary and godly. Now, some, not all of us are attracted to deep thinking, but there's a principle here that we, there's a principle that we've seen that needs to challenge us. And it's this, the pursuit of holiness requires renewed thinking. Now, this is perhaps most evident in Romans 12 too, a very familiar verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So if we're going to be obedient to God in the area of modesty, we're going to have to put some time and effort into thinking about our context, thinking about the influences that shape us, thinking about the principles that please God, and trusting the Holy Spirit whom God has given us to guide us. No, we're kind of used to applying renewed thinking in areas like emerging medical ethics or perhaps global business ethics as we start to trade around the world and see all kind of problems with suppliers in a different place in the world and are they treating their workers fairly and spaces like that. But if we can apply renewed thinking to that area, surely we can apply it also to the area of modesty, even though it's such a changing area and such a confusing area. This recognition that we must think contrast with the belief that the Holy Spirit communicates mainly with us by giving us feelings and impressions. So if I'm doing something wrong, the Holy Spirit is going to make me feel like I'm doing something wrong. He'll make me feel uncomfortable. And if that doesn't happen, then I'm free to continue doing what I was doing. Since the Holy Spirit is a person, he is free to communicate in all kinds of ways. But we must remember that he has spoken through the Bible, God's written word. And he has said that the pursuit of holiness necessarily involves a call to scripture-shaped, spirit-led thinking. If we fail to think in new ways, we will fail to please God. So for the next several minutes, let's think together about modesty. Look back at 1 Timothy 1, sorry, sorry, 1 Timothy 2, verse 9. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. This verse is going to help us, but not as much as we might want. It speaks of modesty, but it doesn't define it. And this noun is used only one other time in the New Testament. And, that, and in that passage, it means reverence. So a word search is not going to help us much in defining modesty. But if we think carefully about how Paul is teaching in this verse, we're going to find some very useful building blocks. What Paul does here is he lays out a principle governing how women should dress. They should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, describing an external standard which is being informed by two heart postures, with modesty and self-control. So modesty doesn't begin on the outside. We can talk about modesty in our dress, we can talk about modesty in the way we speak about ourselves, but the modesty that pleases God is not the putting on of an appearance, but a God-focused inner virtue that has an outward display. Already, that's helpful. It means that you can be modest in how you dress, but immodest in your heart. You can figure out the standard that's expected of you and pursue that standard with a self-righteous heart. You can be proud of your external modesty, which is to lack modesty in your heart, since modesty and humility are closely related. It also means that immodesty is possible in the most strict and conservative environments, like some of our churches in Jamaica. If outfits and hats and shoes are being used to draw attention to oneself like an antenna, then that's immodest. 
I don't say that so we can look down from our, on others from our comfortable casual perch, but so that we can be aware of the inability of external standards to curb the sin sickness that is in the hearts of each of us. I used to work in cafes a fair bit. Um, I haven't had an office in many years, and cafes are a change of scenery for me. Now, I'm usually able to work without being disturbed with music playing and conversation going on, but there are these occasions where I'm really disturbed, and it tends to go like this. Somebody walks in having a conversation very loudly on their cell phone, just kind of broadcasting everything that's going on with them. And sometimes they'll continue that for five minutes, standing at the cashier ordering something. Or somebody is seated and then decides to make a call, and again, the volume of this call is just unbelievable. You're like, but you're in a public space. What's going on? Why do I know everything you're doing? Now, making that a call in that way is fine if you step out into the parking lot or in the privacy of your own office. But in, in that context, that kind of behavior is definitely inconsiderate. But I also think it's immodest. It comes across as broadcasting your own importance. I think we can say that without judging the heart posture of the person. I mean, they may be, aware, they may be unaware sorry, of the expectations of others or unaware of their own behavior. But if I saw one of you doing that, I think I should talk to you about it. You see, modesty is consciousness. Uh, sorry, modesty is consciousness and, and, and concerned with what is appropriate in a context. That's why in 1 Timothy 2.9, Paul can speak about respectable apparel. He doesn't define it, and there are no diagrams in an appendices that we did not get. That adjective is used only twice in the New Testament. And... You want to know where the other time it's used? It's used over in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy to describe what an elder should be like. He should be respectable. So Paul is assuming that there's such a thing as respectable, proper, well-ordered dressing and behavior that we should be able to discern in others and within the culture. This means that modesty is not equivalent to frumpiness or showing little care for one's appearance. So for both men and women, when we just can't be bothered to put any effort into, into dressing acceptably for the occasion, that's not modesty. It might be laziness, and it might be idolizing our comfort. But why have I been referring to context and culture? Isn't modesty absolute? It isn't. That's one of the things that makes the pursuit of modesty so challenging. It's not like sexual purity, which is absolute. Modesty displays itself in a cultural and situational context. We can see that again in the verse we've been considering. Look at verse 9 again. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. The principle comes with a negative example. Paul is not saying that you women need to stop wearing braids. He can't be saying that wearing braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire is sinful in all places at all times. That doesn't fit with what we see throughout the scriptures. Uh, and we're not even talking about the metaphorical references to wearing jewelry or fine clothing or images in the Proverbs or stories like the prodigal son where the son is adorned in the best robe and given a ring. And all of these are presented in a positive light. What we learn from the commentators is that apparently the style of hair and the way of accessorizing that Paul is telling them to reject was known by his readers to be immodest and extravagant at the time. In some Muslim countries, for a woman to fail to cover her head is immodest. The Japanese have particular ways of addressing each other in a business setting, and to ignore those ways would be impolite. But those customs are not absolute. 
They're culturally determined. Modesty is also situational. We could imagine this in a biblical context, but we don't need to. We can tease it out for ourselves. So every Sunday we gather here at the golf club, and just a few yards to that side, to my right, is a swimming pool. If you're coming here to go to the swimming pool, a man or woman could wear what would be considered to be modest swimwear. Now, my point is not to argue about what modest swimwear is. That's not where we're going this morning. The point is, even modest swimwear would, not, would be immodest for attending a church service here or a business meeting over there in the conference room. A friend of mine who is a believer works in management in corporate Jamaica, and he shared a story with me a couple of years ago. He told me that in his company, they were having just consistent challenges with how some of the young women whom they had employed were dressing, particularly with low cuts and revealing blouses. So one day, in the best way he could, he decided to have a conversation with one of them and just to ask her, what's going on? Why, why is this the trend? Why are you dressing in this way? She kind of considered what he was saying and then replied to him, and I don't make these things up, I'm not this good, but sir, breasts are weird. No, I, I honestly don't make these things up. No, I've been suggesting that modesty is culturally determined. But what do we do when the standards of the culture don't seem nearly high enough? What do we do when breasts are weird? We remember that we're not only called to modesty, but away from sensuality. Again, sensuality is hard to define, but not impossible to identify. It's wrapped up in wanting to be desired sexually by others apart from your spouse. We're also called to love each other by considering how our behavior affects others. So even when the culture does not consider something to be modest, we as believers have other considerations in our quest to please God. Men, we need to be aware that we have been raised in a culture that tends towards immodesty and sensuality in our speech. It's a good thing to compliment women, but there's a difference between complimenting and being suggestive. A difference between being kind and being flirtatious. Now, if this is an issue for you, ask your brothers to help you to pursue holiness in this area. So I think we're at the point, having thought for a while about modesty, where we can consider a definition. I'm going to borrow a good one from R.W. Glenn and Tim Challies that I think captures what I've been teasing out. Modesty is that virtue which is respectful of a culture's rules for appropriate and inappropriate dress, speech, and behavior in a given situation. So it captures the internal quality. It is a virtue. The external demonstration, appropriate dress, speech, and behavior, and the cultural and situational considerations. But notice there's nothing uniquely Christian about this definition. That's important because we need to acknowledge that non-believers can be modest, and even in a way that's displaying a heart posture, while believers who have been truly born again by the Spirit of God can fail to be modest in internal disposition and external demonstration. So we have considered modesty as a biblical call, a cultural mess, and a particular need of ours, and we've spent some time thinking about modesty from the Scriptures in some practical ways in order to define it. Now, what we must seek to understand is how the gospel, the good news of the salvation that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, informs and shapes our pursuit of modesty. That's because our goal is not to be conservative, but to do everything we do for the glory of God. So let's go at it then. We're going to look at pursuing modesty. So that's our third signpost. The gospel provides the motivation 
for the Christian pursuit of modesty. I want to talk about this for a while, so let me say it again. The gospel provides the motivation for the Christian pursuit of modesty. Now, that may not sound significant to you when first said, but it's a big deal. It gives everyday actions eternal significance. Think about our jobs for a second. We learn in Colossians that faith in Christ transforms the significance of the everyday work we do, even if we're still doing the same job after we come to faith in Christ. It's the same with modesty. In that sense, for some of you ladies, pursuing Christian modesty might not lead to significant changes in your wardrobe, but a change in your thinking about what you're actually doing as you dress modestly. For some of you men, it might not result in massive changes in your behavior, but a new awareness, for example, that self-controlled behavior is pleasing to God and can be consciously offered as worship. So how does the gospel provide motivation for modesty? Because the gospel says that despite our immodesty and our pride in our modesty, we are accepted graciously by God because Jesus was perfectly modest and paid for our immodesty. To trust in Jesus is to accept God's verdict about our immodest speech, behavior, and dress. We can't receive forgiveness if we don't accept that we are guilty. So to believe the gospel is also to believe that our sins of immodesty are serious. They're deadly serious. This is Glenn and Charlie's again. That Jesus had to die for our immodesty should be sufficient to show us how awful it really is. That Jesus chose to die for our immodesty should be sufficient to show us how loved we really are, in spite of and in defiance of our immodesty. That love, that accepting grace, is also a transforming grace. It is a demanding grace. Or as Glenn and Charlie's put it, it is grace with an edge. This perspective on grace is so important to understand. I want to read a story for you that's shared by Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal God. Some years ago, I met a woman who began coming to Redeemer, the church where I am a minister. She said that she had gone to a church growing up, and she had always heard that God accepts us only if we are sufficiently good and ethical. She had never heard the message she was now hearing, that we can be accepted by God by sheer grace through the work of Christ, regardless of anything we do or have done. She said, that's a scary idea. Oh, it's good scary, but it's still scary. I was intrigued. I asked her what was so scary about unmerited free grace. She replied something like this. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. She could see immediately that the wonderful beyond belief teaching of salvation by sheer grace had two edges to it. On one hand, it cut away slavish fear. God loves us freely despite our flaws and failures. Yet she also knew that if Jesus really had done this for her, she was not her own. She was bought with a price. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with modesty. If our behavior, as far as it concerns modesty, is not motivated by the gospel, we will be in danger of either rejecting God's commands in favor of pleasing ourselves or slavishly and fearfully trying to maintain our modesty in hopes that God will love us or will keep loving us or will ping-pong between the two, depending on our day and the mood. 
Or what may happen to us is we live constantly in an unholy, unhelpful, arbitrary blend of the two. If we lose sight of the gospel in our pursuit of modesty, we will be discouraged when we fail, become angry or ashamed if we're challenged about modesty, even in gentle and helpful ways, and become proud of ourselves when we think we're doing well. And we will have no grace for others who fall beneath our standards since, as far as we are concerned, we have no need of grace ourselves. I've been married to my wife Samora for 16 years now, so I'm intimately acquainted with the fact that the pursuit of modesty in dressing is a lot of work. Thank you, ladies, for how you serve us men through your hard work in this area. But my desire for you in particular is that the hard work involved would not become burdensome to you. Obedience is hard work, but it doesn't have to be a chore. In 1 John 5, 3-4, uh, we're told that God's commands are not burdensome because everyone born of God overcomes this world, including the passions of our former ignorance and the patterns inherited from our forefathers, by faith. When we pursue modesty, trusting our Father who has demonstrated his love for us in Christ, we'll recognize that though it can be a hard road, it is a loving path towards happiness, both in the journey now and in the destination. The gospel provides a motivation for the Christian pursuit of modesty. In addition, the gospel provides a new direction for our efforts in adorning ourselves. It seems to be human to desire to beautify ourselves, maybe somewhat less for men, but then I've seen them at the barber, uh, maybe less in extent. But I think it's fair to say that most of you women have a natural bent, even without the extreme cultural pressure that you're under, to beautify yourselves. If you look back at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, you'll see how God wants to redirect that desire. So we're going to read it again from verse 9 to see the continuity. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. And let's add 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, where Peter teaches about, uh, along a similar vein. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is one of the ways God graciously means to keep you from the temptation towards excessive and inordinate attention on, to your appearance. He wants you to learn to value what he does and to pour your energy into such pursuits. He is beautifying you in Christ, and he wants you to adorn yourself with heart attitudes and good works that please him. So you are beautiful in God's sight when you're tired and disheveled from a hard day's work at the office, or from changing diapers, or cooking, or caring for a sick relative, or helping a friend to clean their house, or running errands to serve your mother, or being hospitable to others, or helping a friend to change a tire, or decorating a hall for a wedding. You are beautiful as you pursue humility and trust in God. Charm is deceptive, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Here's another one. The gospel focuses our attention on our hearts as the source of our immodest dress, speech, and behavior. Last week we saw that Jesus taught that our own sinful behavior is the overflow of our sinful hearts. So this applies to modesty too. 
So growth through the gospel looks, leads us sorry, to look at our motives and to seek to find our satisfaction in Christ instead of sin. We are led then to a life of self-examination. Here are, some of the exam- here are some examples of questions that we can be asking. And men, I want you to see in these questions some of the ways that we need to be thinking about modesty. Am I trying to be the life of the party right now? Or am I seeking to bring joy to others with my humor? Do I talk in the way I do to show that I'm unhindered and I'm not puritanical? Am I considering the way others may be tempted if I talk about this topic in this context? For men, uh, if this is appropriate to you, uh, is this an appropriate context for displaying my physique? Of course, you have to have physique to display. That's why the disclaimer. You might still be serving by not displaying it. But anyway, not going there. Or could I be more discreet now? Am I trying to draw attention to myself with my clothing? Is this too extravagant or ostentatious? Why do I want to buy this particular car? Or that watch? Or that handbag? Or those shoes? Why am I posting this particular image on social media? Why do I post as much as I do? Am I looking for validation? Am I fishing for compliments? Am I looking to be admired and honored? How am I going to celebrate this milestone or achievement in a way that doesn't draw attention to me, but could give glory to God? So whose glory am I after? This, is a, this kind of self-examination is not a threat to us because we are already accepted in Christ. And God is transforming us more and more into his image. There's one more. The gospel infuses our pursuit of modesty as a community with love. Let me say that again. The gospel infuses our pursuit of modesty as a community with love. You see, the grace of the gospel doesn't just shape us as individuals. It shapes us as a community. So how does it lead us to pursue modesty together and inform that pursuit? Let me hit you with a bunch of ways. Since God's acceptance of us was not conditioned on our modesty, our welcome of others cannot be conditioned on that either. So we must kill in our hearts any tendency to become fashion Pharisees who pray, I thank God that I am or that my wife is not like that woman. Or that I don't speak or behave like that person. At the same time, the gospel means that we can't ignore immodesty in our brothers and sisters. Jesus saved us so that we would be set apart for him. So I need to learn to love your holiness more than I fear your reaction to being confronted. The gospel means that I will be very careful to confront in a loving way. I will start with examining my own heart. I won't assume that I can see somebody else's heart either. I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and not assume that their immodesty is sinful or intentional. When I confront, I'm going to do so as a fellow sinner. I need to seek to be gentle rather than insistent and to ask questions to draw out the heart. And I want to see the interaction as a process that requires patient engagement rather than an ultimatum that determines the authenticity of someone's faith. There's so much we need to work out around this. When it comes to immodesty, when should we confront? What's the proper timing and occasion? Who is responsible for confronting? Who should take the lead in that? Should men talk to women about this? Or vice versa? Or should they ask a member of the same sex to do so? Now, I don't have answers to all of those questions. But I, I know that we as a community need to make time and space to talk them through so that we can walk 
this through together, seeking to ensure that the gospel infuses our pursuit of modesty as a community with love. When Jesus was crucified, he was stripped of his dignity and robbed of his modesty. Those who nailed him to the cross divided his clothing between them. He humbled himself even to the point of the most humiliating death possible. He was taking our place. He was immodestly put on display, facing men's scorn and God's wrath for our immodesty in our speech, in our behavior, and in our dress. He was humiliated for our pride and our self-righteousness. He has covered our nakedness and our shame with robes of righteousness. And he has promised that one day he will clothe us further still with perfect resurrected bodies. It is our Savior who has humiliated for us, who loves us in our immodesty and pride and calls us to modesty. If we're going to avoid the pitfalls that pervade this issue, the only sure path is the gospel path. And the first step we must make on that path is repentance. So as I did last week and I plan to do next week, I want to conclude this sermon with a model prayer of repentance pertaining to sins relating to modesty. And my hope is that this prayer will give you words, give words to the cry of your own heart in response to the ways that God has been speaking to you and help you to continue to pray on your own. So let's pray. Father, your word has exposed us this morning. Very few, if any of us, have built our understanding and practice of modesty with reference to the gospel, the good news of your grace given to us freely in Jesus Christ, your Son. And in failing to build on the foundation which is Christ, even when we had good intentions, we were unwittingly distorting modesty in one way or another. All our righteousness truly is like filthy rags. We have sinned in our self-serving immodesty and with our self-righteous modesty. And we have fallen short with modesty that may be good and even considerate of others, but fail to be directed to you in the right way as a response to our salvation. At times, Lord, we've, fa- we've failed to be modest in our speech and behavior, wanting to draw attention to ourselves, wanting to appear important. At times, we have been proud of our supposed modesty, looking down on others who we saw as less virtuous. We fail to think charitably, and speak graciously about others when they have been immodest. We failed also to gently and lovingly encourage others towards modesty, forgetting that the call to modesty is not about our comfort, but about your glory. Thank you, Lord, that you have clothed our nakedness with your perfect righteousness, that you have covered our impatience, indifference, and rebellion with your perfect obedience. Help us to learn to welcome others, not on the basis of our assessment of their modesty, but on the basis of their acceptance through Jesus. Teach us not to condemn those that you have justified. Please help us to learn to humbly and gently challenge each other towards greater modesty in our dress, speech, and behavior, empowered by your grace, which is transforming each of us into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Be pleased to make Grace Family Church into a community adorned with grace and modesty. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. 
To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.